Do you have a question about the Bible? Do you ever wonder if you can know and understand things about God better than you do? Maybe you're struggling with an issue in your walk with the Lord. Maybe you need some biblical guidance. You're hearing things that you're not sure about, about God or Scripture or your salvation. We'd love to help. Hello, friends. Good morning. It is Open Line with Dr. Michael Redelnik, Moody Radio's Bible study across America. The phone number to call to ask your Bible question today is 877-548-3675. I am Mike Fabares, sitting in today for Dr. Michael Redelnik, and I'm coming to you live across many of our stations here in Moody Radio. We're sitting around the kitchen table as Michael likes to say, just trying to get casual and talk and work through whatever your question might be. We want to talk about God. We want to talk about the Bible. We want to talk about your walk with the Lord. I am the pastor of Compass Bible Church, not in Chicago, but in Aliso Viejo, California. Do you know where that is? Down in the heart of South Orange County. We're not too far from uh, Disneyland, I guess, if you've been there or you know where that is. Happen to be a graduate of Moody Bible Institute way back in the day. Also the host of Focal Point Radio, which I hope you listen to right here on the Moody Network. Moody Stations, lots of different places you can catch that broadcast. Focal Point Radio, that's where I preach the Bible every single day on radio across the country. And uh, today we're not going to do that. Not going to be my agenda. It's going to be yours. We want to get your phone call and we want you to talk to us live here on the program. Your Bible question again can be asked through the phone number 877-548-3675. Jot it down. 877-548-3675. Or you can send your question through Open Line website. The Open Line website is just simply Open Line Radio, no spaces, openlineradio.org. And then look for that little place where you can fill out the Ask Michael a Question section. And then you can just type in your question and send it to us. Openlineradio.org. That's, I suppose, for the shy. <laughs> Or maybe you need to thoughtfully con construct your question. We'd love to get it either way. On the air would be great or through our website. We've got a great production team here, as you know. Open line can't happen without the people that are gifted to make it happen. Trish McMillan, of course, is our producer. Courtney Young is our engineer spinning all those dials and making things work. And Lynn is the one you're going to listen to and talk to when you call in. She's answering our phones and again, that number is 877-548-3675. So I hope you're just settled in this morning, whatever you're doing, and you're listening to this with an open mind, open heart, ready to look at what the scripture has to say. And before we go to the phones, I was just thinking yesterday about a little article I wrote, just thinking about how often we struggle with our feelings. I mean, so many things that we deal with in the Christian life are determined by how we feel. Sometimes I think about the problem of our feelings that are so connected to who we are as people that are fallen in bodies that do a lot of bad things. We know biologically we get sick, you know, we get cancer, we get arthritis, you know, we have sore throats, all the things that seem to happen that we know aren't right. And sometimes we assume that our feelings aren't subject to the same kind of fallen nature that the rest of our body uh, is, is all about. Now, the Bible says very clearly in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, that we've got desires and passions of our body that are waging war against our soul. And so we can't always trust our feelings. As a matter of fact, when I say, how are you feeling? That's a great and nice thing to ask. But no matter what the answer is, it should probably have very little bearing on what you do next. Next, 
in your life. I mean, whatever it is that you're thinking about doing shouldn't be based on necessarily how you feel. There are some exceptions to that. God uses guilt, for instance, because of sin in our life that's unconfessed to drive us to confess our sins or make something right or leave our offering to use Jesus's words at the altar and go fix our relationships. But I'll tell you, you've got to agree, our generation is spending way too much time thinking about exactly how they feel and trying to make decisions or prioritize things just based on how they feel. Right? Feelings can be an excuse for a lot of bad decisions, can be the procrastination or the reason for procrastination of a lot of good decisions. So really, we've got to think about the Bible as the guide, the lamp to our feet, the light to our path. And in the Bible, it makes very clear that some of the impulses of our fallen flesh, I would say many of the impulses of our fallen flesh, are, us are usually trying to get in the way of how we ought to think and what we ought to do, biblically, godly, following Christ. So remember that in our present condition, prior to our forthcoming glorification of our bodies, and that's coming, and that's going to mean that all the impulses of our body, so one day will be, they'll be great, all the things we feel. We're, we're never going to be like tired or hungry to the place where we're like making bad decisions or we're grumpy or we're out of sorts. God's going to fix all of that, and the eternal state's going to be fantastic. We're going to have an external standard of God's word that's going to perfectly agree with the internal promptings of our hearts. God's spirit, my spirit, everything's going to be the way it ought to be, and we can do what is right without protest from our frustrations or our sadness or our irritations or even our despondency. So the Lord expects you and I to relentlessly remember that our emotions are not in charge. Remember that. May God give you the kind of inner spiritual fortitude that you need and that I need today to do what we know God expects us to do, to think the way God expects us to think with a whole lot less of the concern for the objections that our feelings might raise. So hang in there today, however you're feeling. What matters is that we get the Word of God clearly in our mind as that beacon that's going to guide and direct us, the things we need to do, things we need to think, things we need to say, things we need to value, the worship we need to give God, the diligence about the things that God calls us to on this day. So very, very, very important that we think that way. And this is why we have the program to answer questions from the Bible. And that's what we want to do. So we're going to look now to Chattanooga, Tennessee. Great place to go. WMBW. Gary, you're on the line. Let's start out our Q&A today with your question. How can I help? Good morning. Yes, a couple of days ago, I heard just a news clip about uh, the Euphrates River drying up. And I understand there's a prophetic connection there. I believe it's in Revelation 16 something. And I just wanted to get your input on that. Yeah, well, uh, you know, there is that statement. Remember that in Revelation chapter 16, we do have in that passage a description of what's going on during the tribulational period. And let me just read that passage for you. I'm just pulling it up here real quick. In Revelation chapter 16, verse 12, talks about the sixth angel that's pouring out bowls. These are bowls of God's judgment during the tribulational period. And it says he's going to pour that out on the great river Euphrates, and its water is going to dry up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. Now, remember, this is all moving toward chapter 19, where there's this big, there's this big uh, showdown between God, ultimately, and the 
world powers that are coming against the people of God, the, the children of Israel there in the land in that last section of the great tribulational period. And what we want to see is that all the things that are happening here in particular as it relates to the sixth angel's bowl is having all of that being prepared for that final battle that we call the battle of Armageddon or the battle of that valley of Megiddo. So what's happening here in the text uh, may be related in some way to the fact that we know that it's going to be completely uh, able to traverse with whatever military equipment is going to be dragged across that valley there. But we just know that what we see today oftentimes corresponds, like the the interest in rebuilding the temple, for instance, for the Israelites mm-hmm. in Israel. But all of these things will find their their ultimate fulfillment, and I think in a dramatic way, now not you know incremental in a small way, but in a large and clear, dramatic, miraculous way during that tribulational period. D- does that help, Gary? Well, yeah. I mean, I didn't. I wasn't. Didn't really have any information other than you know other than the blurb that I saw, and I just uh, you know we tend to think that everything is going to be hard and fast, like today and tomorrow. When I realized we're looking at a span of time or a season, if you were. So I just wondered how these that things might taking play place, even like here. talking about digital currency and how things are, yeah. you know, how they're going to work in the future, or at least how people want them to work. So we can kind of control how people spend their money. We can say you can't buy things that we don't as a governmental authority don't want you to spend money on. I mean, these things obviously relate to what we read about in the Great Tribulational Period. And uh, we see that that's the kind of thing that, that's going to be in place. But it's all going to be utilized in the way the Bible says uh, in that period of time. And that time is coming. And yeah. I think as the Bible would tell us, we always need to be ready. And as we see these things happening, we recognize, yeah, definitely our salvation is drawing near. The Lord is going to have all these prophetic promises come to fruition real soon. So that should get us excited and certainly have us looking up every single day, Gary. So thank you for that call. I know we're having some issues there with hearing the totality of your call, but I think we got the gist of it and we appreciate that. We're going to head out to Bruce now in Illinois, listening on WDLM. How can I help today? Uh, good morning, Pastor. Good morning. Uh, I had a question on Psalm 1, verse 5, that I was studying this morning. And uh, it I just need clarity on what it's speaking of, because in verse 4, it starts to describe the wicked. And in verse 5, it says, therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Could you clarify that for me? Yeah, and just picture it this way. This is, remember, all lyrics of worship songs, right? So these aren't trying to describe things in ways that uh, aren't without some of that poetic uh, overtone. And, and when we talk about someone in judgment that's going to be evaluated, that gets, for instance, we might even say loosely in our language, we might get plowed down, right? <laughs> might get run over. Uh, we don't mean that literally, uh, but in this sense, we know that this is representing that someone is not going to make it through the judgment, right? They're not going to make it through the judgment, as the next line says, nor will the sinners right, be able to stand in the congregation of the righteous. So there's a sense in which the judgment's going to come, like it says in the previous previous passage, like chaff, it's going to drive away the wicked. They won't stand. They won't be able to make it through the evaluation. 
And of course, we know from what the Bible says that Jesus is the only reason we, as sinful people, are going to be able to stand in the judgment. We're going to be able to be clothed in Christ. We have that great opportunity to say, I am there and able to to stand through the evaluation of the holy God of the universe because I'm clothed in the holy Son of God, and therefore I am going to stand in the judgment. But the good news for us is we know our hope is not in our own righteous deeds, even as a lot of the rest of the Psalms say. Our, Our hope is in the fact that God is gracious and has provided a sacrificial lamb to allow us to stand through that. Like if I said to my kid, you're going to take this really hard test at school, uh, and, and we want you to be able to stand up through that test. I want you to come out the other side and not be driven away or run over, or I don't want this test to plow you down. That's the picture here of the wicked uh, that will not be able to stand in the judgment. Does that help, Bruce? Okay. Yes, very much so. Thank you. Right. I completely Thanks. understand. I appreciate it. Terrific, Bruce. Thank you so much for the call. And we got a whole lot more to come on the program today, but we're going to take a break as we think through all the things that might be uh, kind of surfacing, even with the questions we've had, questions you might have about the Bible, the Christian life. My name is Mike Fabares. I'm sitting in for Dr. Michael Radelnik, and you're listening to Open Line on Moody Radio. Our number, 877-548-3675. And we'll be back right after this. The Old Testament books of Psalms and Proverbs teach us biblical life lessons and principles that are too important to skip over. That's why we'd like to send you the commentaries on Psalms and Proverbs taken from the Moody Bible Commentary. Learn how the poetry and prophecy in these two books apply to our lives. You can request your copy today when you give a gift of any amount to OpenLine. Call 888-644-7122 or give online at openlineradio.org. Welcome back to Open Line with Dr. Michael Riddelnik. I am not him. I am Mike Fabares, but we have got answers nevertheless, hopefully rooted in Scripture. That's my goal. It's always my goal. And so we're going to get back to the calls now as we think through what the Bible has to say about whatever it is that might be on your mind. And I think I have Dan queued up on the line. Dan, are you there? There he is, Dan from Scottsdale, Arizona, which I'm assuming is pretty warm about this point. Dan, yeah, what is your question? It's only 117 today. Oh, that's not uh, too my bad. Question, my question is about uh, uh, when um, you die, um, Jesus Christ comes for you, and you never know when you're going to die, but uh, is that correct? You think, or is that? Well, Jesus is coming back. I mean, he's made that clear, but we do realize that we're going to have the experience of meeting him if we happen to die before he does return. And according to our understanding of Scripture, we see that Jesus has made clear that if he goes away to prepare a place for us, he's coming back to receive us to himself. So that picture of him coming back to get his people 
as we read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we believe that if we don't die before that scheduled appointment, that we are going to meet him in the air as he takes those of us that are trusting in him to be with him. So that's where we talk about the return of Christ to get his church. And then, of course, he's going to have his feet touch the ground, as it says in Acts chapter 1. The way he left the Mount of Olives, he's going to come back. It's going to come with a lot more fanfare. If you read Zechariah chapter 14, he's going to come back when his feet touch the Mount of Olives. It's going to split in half. It's going to be a real cataclysmic event. But yeah, to meet the Lord, if I die this afternoon and Christ doesn't come back before this afternoon, then uh, I am going to meet the Lord when I die. Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, or as he says in Philippians 1, you know, do I want to live on and keep doing ministry? Well, that would be good, but to die would be far better because I, I would be able to see the Lord. I meet the Lord And that picture of us meeting the Lord, we use that term, that's a little different than our words, the return of Christ. So the return of Christ is not that I'm going to have him return when I die. We're saying, no, we'll meet the Lord at that particular point when we die. But he's coming back, physically, bodily coming back, because that is his clear promise. Does that help, Dan? Yes, thank you very much. Excellent question. Yeah, no, very important. All right, Jane, we're going back to Chattanooga on WMBW. Jane, how can I help? Uh, yes, Pastor Mike. Um, I um, I live on Social Security because I want to be free to minister and just however I, I can. And I have been tithing on that in the past. And you know, I I was just wondering if the concept of tithing is based on making profits. I believe I heard that much in the past, and if that's the case, then um, I I just sense that I could live on God's grace and and not and just give out of my heart instead of being legalistic about ten percent. You know. Um, Am I making sense? (laughs) Yeah, I know you're making sense, Jane. And I would certainly say that the tithe, which means a tenth, was certainly a part of what was required in the Old Testament system as Israel was requiring that they had to give a tithe, not only a tithe to the Levitical payroll, uh, but also a tithe for the operating expenses of the nation. That's a second tithe. And then a triennial tithe every uh, third year, which was kind of a Social Security tithe for orphans and widows. So tithing was, when you add it up, I mean, it it took over 20% of your income to pay for all that was going on in the nation. Now, I'm assuming everything that you have has been taxed. The government in America is really good at that, to get a hold of some of that. So to, to run the nation, to pay into Social Security, to keep our, our leaders you know, paid for, that's happening in the civil reality as we live under the quote-unquote Roman or Babylonian empires that we live under, the, the American system. But the church itself, of course, also has to be supported As it says in Galatians 6, we have to be able to have our youth pastors buy diapers for their children. We have to have the light bill paid for at the church that we attend. So you have to give, but it doesn't give you that same tenth that we had in the Old Testament. 
So you ought to give, you ought to give as you purpose in your heart to give. I just think 10th, since it's such a normal uh, standard, that's why a lot of people choose to say, hey, if you're going to learn to give, that'd be a good way to start. Let's start giving at 10%. And that's just a, a rule of thumb. It should not be a legalistic requirement. And and then if you say, well, Jane, you've heard that it really should only come if you're earning the money. I would say, well, one of the problems with that thinking is that even if you were a Levite and you were getting the money, not because you were earning it in the fields, because you were plowing the crops and selling it in the marketplace, you still had to give uh, to the Lord's work as a, a Levite. So it didn't matter how you got your income. Whatever you were using to sustain your life, you as a Christian, in our case, we ought to pray to the Lord as to how much I should give. We ought to be generous not only to our own church, but we should be generous whenever we see our hearts move to do something that is going to be a, a generous act of love or compassion or supporting ministries that we believe in. Uh, that's very important. So yeah, legalistic. And, and when we say that, I, I think we've got to be careful that we don't just throw anything we don't like or anything that's costly into that category, because to tell the truth, you could say, well, I don't want to be legalistic. I just want to say what I need to say and whatever will get me through this current conversation. But we need to tell the truth because that's what God wants us to do. And we need to give because that's what God wants us to do. He was generous. He gave to us, and he asks us to give to the work of God now in the world. So, Jane, I would say you pray about what you should give. Now, you shouldn't worry about a 10% as if I, if I did 9%, I would be in trouble with God. You give because you love God, you give because you love his work, and God will get you through those decisions without feeling like you're just doing it because you have to. Does that help, Jane? Well, yes, it does. And, you know, I know in Malachi 3.10, it promises a blessing. And, you know, I've been, I've been standing on that, but I also know that you know, I I have been involved in churches all my life in ministering to children and everything. And like I told the other person, I, I'm over 60, and I feel like as a widow, you know, that um, I I feel like, you know, I should receive the work of my hands. I'm very creative. I, I want to be supported from uh, my creative work and my ministry uh, so, um, you know, I, um, I, I received so many blessings from Moody and, and listening to Moody radio and, and I feel like I should give almost equally to the church where I attend and, and to Moody. So, you know, I feel like the Lord would even honor that, uh, that desire from my heart. So, well, your first, in, your you first so responsibility, Jane, is to love the Lord through your giving. And of course, we've got to support the churches that we attend. They don't have any other source of income to pay their people or to pay their facility costs without the, the loving support as people give to the Lord as it goes to the church. And then, of course, just like me, when Moody Radio is raising funds, I, I, I want to get involved in that. And I give myself, even though I'm on the Moody Network, I give to my own radio ministry. I give to Moody Radio. Those are the kinds of things I think that just bring joy to us to support good ministry. So Jane, it sounds to me yeah. like your heart is generous. So just keep it up. Keep moving in the direction of trying to love the Lord through your giving, and God will certainly guide you through that. Thanks for the call, Jane, out there in Chattanooga. Let's head to Illinois. Now, Sandy, you're on the air on the flagship station, WMBI. You're talking to Mike Fabares. How can I help? My question is, can a woman be a pastor of a church? Is that biblically sound? 
Yeah, well, the word pastor is an equivalent word in Scripture with the word elder and, and the word overseer. And the Greek words, not that they matter, but poimen, presbyteros, and episkopos, those are all used in synonymous ways, and they represent not just someone who's teaching or caring for people or leading in some way. It has to do with that special group of people that are called to make the administrative decisions in the churches. They're the ultimate responsible people for how that church is run. So the pastors, overseers, elders, as you might call them, those are gender-specific roles in the Scripture. We can't get around that. Now, the argument today that's being made by so many is, well, you know, it doesn't mean that women shouldn't teach. Well, of course, my wife teaches here in the Women's Bible Study. There are hundreds of people here. I've got a, a gal that runs our women's ministry. It's just we're not talking about teaching gifts or loving people through shepherding and caring for them. And people use those words and think, well, if, if there's any kind of shepherding work going on, that means they're a pastor. That's not true. The pastor is an office. It's a pastoral office or an eldership office or an overseer office, or as the old translations put it, a bishop office that is reserved for men. And I can only say that that's the way God has laid it out in Scripture. He's rooted it in the creative order. I can't change that. I I can't capitulate to the pressure of culture to say, well, if the world doesn't like it or people don't like it, or a lot of people in my church vote, they say they don't like it. I'm not going to change it because God has made it clear in his word. So we have no problems with the fact, or at least we shouldn't, I guess modern society might, that moms have a particular role in nurturing young babies and caring for uh, infants in a way that men cannot and are not designed to. And God has said, well, even in the church, what I want is the leadership of that administrative top level of the Poimen Episcopos Presbyteros to be the men of the church that are qualified, they're gifted, they're educated, they're called, and they're ensconced in that role because they've accepted that duty. So yeah, I, I know it's a hot topic today, but you know, it was, a, it was a hot topic in Corinth in the first century. And, and we need to understand this is nothing new that people are saying, well, wait a minute, this doesn't seem right that God would put some boundaries up here based on your gender or based on uh, whatever it might be. But of of course, there are, in this case, very clear passages of Scripture, uh, which I'm sure you've heard discussed, but those are things that, as we see rooted in creation, we can't change. So, Sandy, that's where we're at, and I know the controversy is is uh, is ramped up in our day, but I would say we're going to stick with what the Lord says, because one day we'll all answer to Him, and He's not going to say, wow, you know, I'm glad that you changed what I said clearly in, in my Word, because you were concerned about what the culture was saying, or what you thought in your heart you should do. We need to follow the Word of God, and I think that is going Going to be tested increasingly so in the months and years to come. So Sandy, I appreciate your call. So thankful for it. We've got a lot of calls coming up. We want to do what the Lord says, what the Bible teaches, and we're going to work on trying to articulate that as clearly as we can. My name is Dr. Mike Fabares. I'm sitting in for Dr. Michael Redelnik. Our producer, Trish McMillan, is going to bring the mailbag in, and we're going to go through some of your questions that have been given to us online. You're listening to Open Line on Moody Radio. Every weekend, OpenLine is here to help you understand God, the Bible, and the spiritual life. You ask the questions, and I try to answer straight from Scripture. When you become a Kitchen Table partner, you're not only keeping this program on the radio and internet, you're helping others to hear the truth, and you'll receive exclusive benefits like regular Bible study moments by me offering insight and encouragement. Become a Kitchen Table partner by calling 888-644-7122 
or go to openlineradio.org. Welcome back to Open Line. I'm Dr. Mike Fabars filling in today for Dr. Michael Redelnik, and it is the mailbag section. So, Courtney, you are here. You have got some questions. Let's see what you found in today's mailbag. All right. Um, our first question is from Sue in Illinois. She listens to WMBI and has been reading Luke 13, verses 6 and 7 specifically that say, and he told this parable. A man had a fig tree that was planted in his vineyard. He came looking for fruit on it and found none. He told the vineyard worker, listen, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it even waste the soil? So those are the two verses. And she got to thinking, does this mean that if we don't produce the fruit of the Spirit in our lives that we can lose our salvation? Or is this a reference to something else? Yeah, you know, this picture of a field that has been invested in by the owner and not bearing fruit, in this case the vine dresser, right, for three years trying to find that uh, fruit on that vine, is such a common picture in the Bible. Isaiah 5, I was just preaching not long ago and couldn't help but enlist this picture of the Lord being the Lord of Israel coming to his vineyard where he dug out the, the field, he cleared it of stones, he planted a choice vine, he did everything he could, put a watchtower over it like a, you know, a modern-day scarecrow you might envision. I, I, I put everything in place and yet didn't get good grapes. I got bad grapes, got sour grapes, and he says, what are we going to do with this vineyard? Right. So the picture of God's investment uh, though this is a common picture of Israel, it's just a principle we see throughout the scriptures. As a matter of fact, if you want a parallel to it, you can look at Hebrews chapter 6, where it says the same thing about us as Christians in verse number 7. The land that's drunk up the rain that falls on it produces a crop that's useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated. That's great. It receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless, it's near being cursed, and in, it, and in the end it will be burned. So that idea... Of, of God saying, okay, you are a field, uh, I'm giving this investment of everything that I can give you, uh, and, and we're looking for fruit. That's exactly what Jesus said when he says, you'll know them by their fruit. So real Christianity, remember this, is not that we produce a certain amount of fruit, because some bear fruit 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold, but that there is a response to the Lord, starting with faith in Jesus Christ, and if that happens, his spirit invades us. Talk about the best miracle grow we could have. It moves in us to get us to fight the desires of the flesh, and it moves us into a kind of fruitfulness we didn't have before, even though I know we know ourselves better than other people know us, and we think, well, I got a lot of sin left in my life. But we all stumble in many ways, James 3, 2 says, but we are moving through that battle with the flesh and bearing fruit now we wouldn't have borne before. So yeah, no fruit or thorns and thistles and no change of life just because I go to church. Well, there's a picture of that field that gets all the advantages but never responds by embracing Christ and, and producing fruit. So it does relate to us, even though I think some people look at that passage and go, oh, that's an Old Testament reference to Israel. And Israel wasn't bearing fruit because it wasn't responding to the Messiah. So the Messiah is saying, well, Israel's now going to be cursed. That, that, that There's some truthfulness to that. And, and Israel had paid the price for the rejection of their Messiah in the first century, but it is a principle that applies to all Christians. So we want to bear fruit to the Lord. We can't lose our salvation because we're not bearing enough, but we need to make sure that if we're a Christian, we have the Spirit of God in us that is changing our core desires and we're bearing fruit, whereas we weren't bearing that kind of fruit before, even though we're all praying for greater consistency. 
Okay, that's a great answer and very all-encompassing, and I appreciate that. Thank you so much. I do want to let um, listeners know, too, next week our Open Line program will actually be focusing in on part of Sue's question. She asked if we can lose our salvation, and next week we will spend the entire program, both hours, talking about the security of the believer. And wow. Yeah, it's a recorded yeah. program that we did with um, Eva Radelnik, uh, Cisco Cotto and Mike Van Lanningham, uh, who are all professors at Moody with Michael Rydelnik. And so it's a fantastic, encouraging program. So next week, that's what we will be airing. We won't be taking your calls next week. But that's excellent. Um, yeah. yeah, it's a it's a fantastic program that we just recorded um, last week. So make sure you listen if you have questions about that or if you just want to be encouraged. So thank you, Sue, for that question. Next question is from Ed in Florida. He listens online and says, as believers, we are to love the sinner but hate the sin. Why then does David write in Psalm 139, verses 21 and 22, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Well, yes. Well, here's the thing. Maybe our, our little phrase is uh, needs to be elaborated on, because we like to say, we, you know, we we hate the sin and, and love the sinner. And, and in, in a sense, that's very biblically true. Jesus told us, right, to, to, not, to love those, to love our enemies and, and pray for those that persecute us. That's, that is a biblical principle. But when we look at the, the godly response of people throughout the Bible to sinful things, we can't divest the reality of an emotional response of not feeling like this is great. We're not copacetic with what you just did. If you came up and punched my kid in the face, uh, you know, I'm going to have a strong aversion to that. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say that's not a good thing. I'm going to say that's bad. That's going to well up within me feelings, emotions that now are not to be reacted on with the kinds of things that we always attribute to hate, which is I'm going to punch you in the face or I'm going to go and, and burn your house down. Right? Those are actions that we often think, well, that's what hatred is. Well, that is the expression of hatred. The Christian life, we can be angry and not sin. And there's where we have to make the distinction. Right? I can say, when I watch the news about rape and murder and, and, and robbery and people hitting people and all the stuff that you see on the, on, on, on the internet these days, I don't feel good about that. There's a hatred for that. And and yet I want to say that does not mean that my feelings of of feeling that strong aversion and that discomfort in my my soul is not going to be expressed with now I'm going to go out and I'm going to execute my own vengeance on you. No, I, I leave room for the Lord to take his own revenge. He's going to deal with the issues that I'm feeling of injustice. See, when you go to that movie and you watch the the good guys win and the bad guys lose, you know, just the basic shoot 'em up movie, whatever, you know, type it might be, we're always feeling, oh, I like the fact that this movie ended with the bad guys losing. Well, that's the sense of justice we have. And when we see something, someone who is evil, someone that is disregarding the Lord, someone who just doesn't care about uh, compassion or love or kindness, we, we have a strong aversion to that. But we're saying as Christians, we're not responding the way that our flesh might want us to respond. We're going to say, wait a minute, let me pray for my enemy. And that doesn't mean I hope they have the best day ever after they just uh, took that old lady's purse. No, we're saying we hope that God will deal with this and he'll t- He'll turn a sinner into a saint, that he'll take a, a, a criminal and a robber and turn him into a hardworking person who will do what is right. So we don't take our own vengeance, right? We trust the Lord with that. And thankfully he's put a, 
a, a layer between us and heavenly justice, and that should be our our judicial system, right? Our law enforcement layer in this in this uh, reality of living in our society, and we ought to be praying for them because that is the place where if someone steals, you know, something out of my car, I can go to court and hopefully to the police and deal with that and have that rectified. But I'm not rectifying it myself. So the discomfort in my spirit is different than lashing out in anger and and taking my own vengeance. Okay. And that's kind of what David then is expressing is this is what I want to do, but because I hate these things that they're doing against you. Yeah. And we need to remember also, he's the king and he is the commander in chief of an army and God often uses right these national mm. armies to to be his arm of vengeance as it says in in Romans 13 it doesn't bear the sword for nothing and it's an avenger right for god to to establish what's right so we know that as a godly king as the commander of an army right his anger can be vented in a godly way through what he's doing with chariots and horses and and bows and arrows and swords now he's got to think that through as well as to whether or not this is appropriate that's what we call in biblical christian theology just war theory. We've got to make sure that we don't engage in war as a government unless it's just and right. But David is a little different than us, and at least we're sometimes saying, well, he does have an avenue through which God can sanction some kind of retaliatory response. I can only defer to my local civil authorities to deal with whatever it is that's, that's irking me, if it's some kind of horrible crime or sin or whatever it might be. Okay. All right. That's helpful. Thank you so much, Mike, and thank you for that question, Ed. We'll do one more. Uh, this hour, Mary Lou in Indiana listens to WGNR and is looking at Ezekiel 46, verse 2, which says, The prince shall enter by the vestibule of the gate from outside and shall take his stand by the post of the gate. The priest shall offer his burnt offering and his peace offerings, and he shall worship at the threshold of the gate. Then he shall go out, but the gate shall not be shut until evening. She wants to know who is this prince? She said, since it's lowercase, I assume it is not the Messiah. Is that true? Well, remember, there's no lowercase or uppercase in the original languages, so Hebrew in this case. So there's nothing that's going to indicate it by the the way that the letter looks in Hebrew. But the context is going to make it very clear that this is not the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is clear throughout this whole section. Chapters 44 through 47 talk about this millennial kingdom. And there is someone called the prince who's not the king. And he has a very distinct description in the sense that he needs sacrifices done for him. Uh, you know, he, he's he's a administrator. And some would say this is the, this is the resurrected David during the... Uh, kingdom, or it might be a descendant of David, but it's some kind of administrative prince. And that's a good word, because if you think about a prince, he's not the king, but he's the son of the king. But we're not talking about the son of the Lord, the God of heaven. We're talking about an assistant, an administrative leader for the Lord Jesus Christ who sits enthroned in Jerusalem during the millennial kingdom. So the prince is someone else. It's been a great theological and, and textual question for scholars to think about. And oftentimes when I read that, I can't help but think about David. David. David's going to be resurrected, and he is God's man in the Old Testament, and he's going to have a role. We're not sure exactly what that role will be. Okay. But I I, I hope I squeezed that in in the time <laughs> here that did. we had. Courtney, those are, 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 I'm sorry, Trish, those are good questions, and we've got more, I know, coming up in the next hour. But yes. for now, we need to get back to our calls after a break, but our number is 877 548 
You're listening to Open Line, and that was Trish McMillan with the, with the giant mail bag that you've been sending in your electronic mail. we got more of that coming up in the next hour. But for now, more Open Line on Moody Radio right after this break. I want to tell you about this month's free gift from Chosen People Ministries. People often tell me they only learned about this worldwide outreach to the Jewish people through my mentioning it here on Open Line. Well, this month, Chosen People Ministries is offering the booklet to an ancient people. This is the autobiography of Rabbi Leopold Cohn. It tells the story of the trials and triumphs of a young rabbi in his native rural Hungary in the late 19th century and his quest for truth. Leopold's trip to the New World and his indescribable joy in finding Yeshua are told in inspiring and timeless detail. Rabbi Cohn went on to found Chosen People Ministries. For your free copy of To an Ancient People, just go to the Open Line website. That's openlineradio.org. Scroll down, you'll see the link that says A Free Gift from Chosen People Ministries. Click on that, you'll be sent to a page where you can sign up for your very own free copy of To an Ancient People. Welcome back to Open Line. I'm Mike Fabares, filling in today for Dr. Michael Rydelnik. Sometimes I say Rydelnik. That is not right. Michael Rydelnik. And I love him. He is, I I heard him recently tell a story about how he got this role. And uh, it's just such a great story. I remember Don Cole, who preceded the, the old program, and what a great man. I was blessed to have met him. But uh, just, I, I love Michael's uh, ability to do this job, and I'm just honored today to fill in for him as I get a chance to do from time to time. So I uh, pray you're doing well, Michael, and uh, hope we're doing a good job here, doing the best we can to fill your big shoes. So let's go back to the line. we got a lot of things happening here on the board. It is a full board. Let's go to Peggy now in Sunrise, Florida. You're on with Mike Fabares. How can I help? Hi, Mike. How are you today? I'm good. I'm a little confused. Your first caller, you told him that when we we pass and we're believers, we go and we see um, Jesus in heaven already. However, and forgive me, I don't remember where in Scripture it is, but um, however, it says that in the end times, God's going to bring down uh, heaven onto earth. And then it says that those who are asleep then will also, you know, wait. So I'm confused of both of those passages. Right. Well, let me clarify. Uh, And the passage you're thinking of, I'm quite sure, is Daniel chapter 12, uh, verse number 2. And remember, the euphemisms, and and that's a a word, let's make sure we understand that a euphemism is a nice way to say something that has a jarring effect if I said it without putting some nicety to it. Uh, Like if my my neighbor's uh, husband died, I wouldn't say, oh, I heard about your husband dying. I would say something like, oh, he passed away or he passed on. That's the way we like to use our language today to soften the blow of saying something that we just know is just a very unpleasant reality. And in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, uh, they like this word sleep. And this was the word, went to sleep. We say today things like, passed away. Your husband passed away. Well, we don't mean he passed away. That's a, that's a euphemism. Uh, we, we, we are looking at a euphemism, which means what a nice way to say dying, which is like even today we might say there's a body in the capital rotunda that's uh, in repose. 
In repose is another way of talking about in sleep, but it just appears to be sleep. That's the nature of looking at a body and saying that body is not active, it's not animated. Uh, it's like it's in repose, it's in sleep. So when we talk about the resurrection of the body, it's as though that dead sleeping body, right, it, it revives. Well, the body is different than our spirit. Our spirit and our body, these are the two component parts, I would argue, of who we are as individuals. In the beginning, God creates man out of the dust of the earth, that's biological, and then he breathes into him the breath of life, and he becomes a living soul. That picture of spirit and body, those are two component parts. Now, when we die, the Bible says that our bodies are laid in the ground. It's like a seed, and it's going to one day rise. But our spirit, as it said very clearly in Philippians 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it goes to be immediate, immediately with the Lord. It's like Jesus telling that parable about the rich man and Lazarus, and they're there, uh, the, 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 the poor man, Lazarus, it, with Abraham having conversations, and the rich man is in a place of torment having conversations. They're conscious, they're aware, they're awake. Even as Jesus, as he dies on the cross, and he says to the criminal that's dying next to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. Well, I know where Jesus was that day, if I'm talking about his body. Well, he was going to spend the weekend in a sepulcher that Joseph owned, in, in a tomb. But he met with me, my spirit. And, and that's why he ends this life by giving up his spirit to the Lord. And he says to the criminal next to him, today you'll be with me in the place where I'm going. So when we talk about you, you've got to say, okay, well, I'm two parts, two component parts, right? They're all a mesh together. But the body rises like out of the sleep. That's the resurrection. And all the passages that speak of the resurrection in Revelation 20 or Daniel chapter 12, that is what it's like. Dead bodies arising from their repose. But the spirit, the spirit immediately goes to be either with the Lord or to a place of torment. So we, my spirit, my conscious awareness, my personality, who I am, is going to meet the Lord when I die. My body, I've already got a plot picked out here in El Toro, California, uh, Lake Forest. I'm going to have my body put there. And one day on the promise of Christ, just like Jesus's body came up from the grave, my body will come up from the grave and it will be like that sleeping body arises. And then I'll be back together with a glorified body and my spirit will be rejoined with my body. And that will be the great and glorious promise of the resurrection. Does that help, Peggy? It sure does, sir. Thank you very much. Very good. Great question. Let's go to Thomas now in Florida, listening on WRMB. How can I help? Hi, Michael. I have a question about David and what he says in Psalm 103, verses 20 to 21, where he says, um, like, praise, praise Lord to you, angels. So it sounds like he's directing what he's saying towards angels and heaven, heavenly beings. So is that an example of David speaking to angels, or is that just an expression of like exclamation, like praise to God? Um, can you can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I, I think like other texts where we see this poetic expression of like, let the fields clap their hands, right? Uh, we want all that has breath in it to praise the Lord. David is not talking, for instance, in that last phrase, to every person on the planet, right? He doesn't have the mechanism to do that. He's, he's writing a song, and he's saying, I want everyone to praise the Lord. And in this passage, he's, he works up into this great section about, I want everyone to bless the Lord. That's how this psalm starts, and this is how it ends. Bless the Lord, bless the Lord, all his works and all the places of dominion, bless the Lord. We know that he's asking even the angels to do what they should do and want to do, and that is to bless the Lord. Thomas, I hope that helps. That's a great question. We've got a lot 
of questions coming our way. This is the close, believe it or not, of our first hour that goes so fast on this program. But the good news is we have another hour of open line coming up on most of these stations. I hope that's your station. And even if not, you can go to our website, openlineradio.org. You can listen in there. This is Open Line. It's a great program for you to get your questions answered. It's usually hosted by Dr. Michael Rydelnik. It's a production of Moody Radio. I am Mike Fabares sitting in today. And we all are grateful that this is a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute. We'll be back for another hour right after this. Thank you.